Pastor Colleen is at the back with the Bible bags for those of you who would like to have one. Everyone else, let's turn to Matthew chapter 22. We're going to spend some time in Matthew as the lectionary takes us to these words of the accountant who wrote down the story of Christ, the first book of the New Testament. I always like Matthew because it's very well organized, just like a good accountant would do it. And all the different stories come together in, in, uh, in batches. We come to a very a well-known uh, moment in the, the life of Christ. Most people think that Jesus taught us about taxes when he is saying this, that we are to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But the problem is that what most of us think he said, when you actually study the original languages and the context, is not really what he said. Not, not really. This is not about a separation of church and state. As though life is divided into two realms, and part of the realm belongs to the state, and part of the realm belongs to God. History has, of course, taught us that uh, it is not a good thing for the state to control the church, or for the church to control the state. And so in our nation, we have kept a separation from that. But it's not a matter in Christian thought that there's a part of our lives that in fact belongs to God and a part of our lives that belong to the church, I mean to the state. That in fact this uh, separation, bifurcation of life is not at all uh, what the Bible teaches, nor is it what Jesus is saying in this text. So this morning as we take the the text of of, uh, Matthew 22, we're on Tuesday of Holy Week. And just a very few days, he's going to uh, be killed. And Tuesday is considered the day of testing because, as we'll see next week, that Jesus is tested in a whole variety of ways in an attempt to discredit him uh, so that his effectiveness as a rabbi can be removed uh, from the the people. And so things are heating up. And they're heating up in part because of what Jesus himself is doing on, on just a couple of days earlier on what we call Palm Sunday, he cleansed the temple. And he directly addressed that his house should be a house of prayer and not a place where uh, money is exchanged and money is made for the priesthood. Also, he is experiencing this growing desperation of the people who are opposed to him. Uh, they can see they're up against a formidable foe even though uh, they don't understand fully who he is and why he is so formidable to them. So on this day, in an occupied land, when Caesar requires an imperial tax, an imperial tax is the tax of Caesar. Just, Just because you're now a conquered land and you're now subjects of Caesar, you need to pay an imperial tax. And so they decide to use that tax against him to destroy him one way or another. So what we're going to do today is something a little different uh, than we normally do, but rather than to read the scripture and then to explore it together from a study perspective, we're going to walk through this experience together. Uh, I liken it to uh, being in one of those movies where all of a sudden the action stops and you get the background and the information and you find out what people are are thinking and what some of the uh, background information is. And so we're going to do that today. We're going to explore together as though we had been there with all the knowledge that the people had as they're standing there. In fact, perhaps even a little more knowledge 
than they might have had. But for the most part, we're going to step back in time and be the Jewish people at that moment when he is attacked. We're standing in the temple courts. Jesus has been teaching with such authority and such effectiveness that two groups who usually hated each other are now coming together in their mutual opposition to Jesus. They want to trap him, we're told. They are the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, it's hard to imagine two groups that hate each other more than the Pharisees and the Herodians. The Pharisees were the epitome of the church. They kept every commandment and 3,000 more. They hated the Romans, and they hated the Roman idolatrous claim that the Caesar was God. They despised the coin that was required to be paid for the imperial tax because it was a graven image, the breaking of the second commandment of God. It was a graven image of the Caesar and the inscription on the coin in writing literally said, Caesar, son of the divine, son of God. Who could bear such idolatry in your pocket to pay that imperial imposed tax? But the Herodians, now the Herodians were of Herod's party the king of Judea, the collaborator with Rome, the vassal king of the Roman Empire, the wealthy and violent leader who lived in opulence while virtually everyone else of his people struggled to survive. But Herod and his gang, the Herodians, were the instruments of Rome in oppressing the people. Now they justified it, of course, by claiming that they were the true Jews and that Herod was the true king, and that some even believed Herod was the Messiah, that he was going to save them. And so, of course, he needed to curry the favor of the political parties so that he could gain power to save. Of course, that's what he would be doing. So in many ways, we have the have and the have-nots. Those who hope in religion and those who hope in politics. But in this moment, they are both on the same side. They both hate Jesus more than they hate each other. Or more appropriately, it would be that they both fear Jesus more than they fear each other. So in this moment, when Jesus is speaking with authority and the whole temple court is listening and all the people are going after his uh, counsel and teaching of Scripture, Matthew explains. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Now, as politicians and Pharisees, they had no idea that their flattery to soften him was actually true. They knew of no one who spoke the truth with integrity. Everyone had an angle. 
Everyone protected their place in the system. Everyone was worried about the evening news around the campfire and the polling data of their popularity. Everyone knows that politics is all about what everyone else thinks of you. And religion is all about looking pious. Even if you're plotting together to destroy a peasant rabbi. Little did they know that they had walked into a place, a sacred place. Not because they stood in the temple courts only, a place dedicated to God thousand years before, but because they stood in the presence of Emmanuel, God with us, the teacher, the truth, the way, the life. They were so blinded by their own false projections upon who they thought him to be that they could not see him for who he was. It was as though a veil was over their eyes. So they stepped in. They laid what they thought was the perfect trap to this peasant rabbi who was not even a student of any ra other rabbi, let alone that prestigious Ivy League kind of rabbi. He had no credentials in their eyes. He certainly couldn't stand up to any kind of theological debate. Tell us then, what is it, your opinion? Is it right to pay? And the word that is used there doesn't mean to pay an obligation that you have no choice. They use a word, is it all right for us to voluntarily give the tax? Is it right for us to volunteer the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Now, every teacher relishes the opportunity to give their opinion, they thought. And so the trap was perfect, they thought. For the Pharisees, no true Jew would be caught carrying a graven image in their pocket, and certainly not into the temple courts. The crowd would see immediately that he was a hypocrite. He was a fake. He was an idolater. He was no different than any of them who secretly carried the denarius in their hands, in their pockets, knowing that if any Roman soldier stopped them and they could not pay and would not pay the tax, that they would be killed. And so all of them were prepared to sell their souls to save their lives. And the Herodians could not wait, of course, for this peasant pastor to say, you don't have to pay the imperial tax. He would be a dead man by morning. The Romans would not tolerate any Jew, let alone a popular peasant rabbi, telling the Jews they didn't have to pay the Roman tax. Even if he said it in the sanctuary, it wasn't protected speech. There was no such thing as protected speech in the Roman Empire. But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, you mask-wearing actors, putting on a show, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius. 
That was ingenious. How could he know? He knew they didn't mean their flattery. He knew they meant evil intent. This wasn't a, uh, an innocent theological discussion. He knew it was a trap. And he knew they had a denarius. Now everyone knew. The perfect Pharisees, who would never break the Ten Commandments, let alone the 3,000 ones that were a hedge to protect you from breaking the ten true ones. He knew they had a graven image in their pocket. And the Jewish Herodians, who claimed to be their leaders and not puppets of Rome, the ones who claimed that they were going to save them from this great persecution that they were all under, now they knew they had an idol, an idol to Caesar. The imperial coin was in their possession. It wasn't in Jesus's. He didn't have a denarius. He had to ask them for one. Now at that point, Jesus could have simply turned and walked away. He had already won the moment. He had already made his point. Now the people knew. These religious and political leaders were as scared as they were. They were ready to sell their souls. They were ready to pay the tax. They had the coin in hand. But Jesus had only begun to explain what this was about. And so he goes on to talk not about religion and politics, church and state. He's making the point that his coming establishes something far greater than these momentary distractions of this world. Having raised the coin for all to see, Jesus simply asks, Whose image is this? Whose inscriptions? Caesar, they replied. Then he said to them, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. He didn't say it as people would read it in languages centuries later, removed from all the rich Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic vocabulary. He said it in a way that changed everything for everyone. It was as if now at that moment the veil was lifted and they could see what this moment and in fact his coming was all about. He said it in a way that every person who knew Genesis would recognize the implication. In whose image is this coin created? What's the source? Where did it come from? How does it explain itself? What is written on it? Immediately every biblical person would think, yes, in whose image is the Caesar Created. The coin we know was created by Rome. It belongs to Rome. But the image, the use of the word image, we know it is written in our scriptures. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then he says, when they answer, it is Caesar's image, so... Return to Rome and its political economic power 
what is political, what is economic. Return the imperial coin to its creators. But give to God everything that is created by God and for God and in God. They undoubtedly thought of the Sabbath worship that they had had just a few days before in which they had sung the wonderful hymn, Psalm 24, in which they had proclaimed their faith and their understanding of who God really is. It's a psalm of David, and they had sung together, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend to the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in this holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob, God of Israel. Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the he, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. It is not Caesar, it is not Herod. It's not the religious establishment or the political parties who rule. For the King has come, the King of glory, the Lord Almighty, King of kings and Lord of lords. When they heard this, Matthew explains, they were amazed. So they left him and they went away. I suppose that's the choice every person had to make when we are amazed, when we actually see, when the veil is lifted, because no one ever spoke like this man. Will we follow him, whatever the cost, or will we leave him and go away? In 2014, we often get caught up in similar categories as this event expressed. We think mistakenly that God wants us to bifurcate our lives and to think that some of it belongs to Caesar or to work or to the community and some of it belongs to God. When in fact the truth is that all things belong to God. If there is anything that is more damaging than to believe that your life is bifurcated, I do not know what it is. For if we think that there is part of us, part of our lives, that belongs to anything besides God, then we are mistaken and we will try to return something to someone or something to whom it does not belong. And we will, in fact, live very differently than if we hear the words clearly that Jesus said, give to God what is God's. Let's spend time in prayer with him.